this week and next week on uh, chapter 15 in my book, Systematic Theology, The Doctrine of Creation. And um, the schedule, as I kind of look through the next few weeks, looks like this. We'll talk today specifically about this question of creation and evolution and the controversy over that topic. Um, next Sunday, I want to talk about the disputes over the age of the earth. Is the earth just, uh, basically it concerns whether the days in Genesis are 24-hour days or whether they're long periods of time or whether there's something else. And there are different theories. And so I'll give a try at that next week anyway. And then, um, and then that finishes the doctrine of creation. Then we move on to chapter 16 on, in the middle of er, October 15th, God's providence, God's sovereignty over the world. If God is sovereign over all things, then how does that account for our individual freedom, our individual responsibility? And that's a really tough question. We plan to take two weeks on that question. And, um, and then go on to... Uh, October 29th, the next chapter in the book, chapter 17, would be the question of miracles and can miracles occur and what are the purposes of miracles in the Bible and are there miracles today? Thank you. Pammy already answered the question. So, uh, <laughs> she said yes. You didn't hear it. But, yeah, okay. And, uh, and then uh, go on on November 5th and probably for the next two or three weeks on November 5th and following, talk about uh, the Bible's teaching on prayer. Um, and the sequence here is, we talked about uh, the, the doctrine of God and the attributes of God. Now here's what God has done, creating the world, and here's how God relates to the world in providence. And then the question of providence and God's relation to the world gets us into the question of miracles and God's intervention in the world. And then prayer, how we relate to God, uh, uh, who created the universe and uh, who governs it. So that's that's kind of the progression of thought. Um, that looks like the topics to come. Um, 18, then chapter 19, uh, angels. And chapter 20, Satan and demons, uh, other parts of the creation. So um, that's, that's kind of where we're going for the fall. Summary of the doctrine of creation. Uh, is there anything else I need to do procedurally? Kent, Kent took care of the announcements. We're, we're all set, right? Okay. Um, uh, God created, this is a summary we talked about a few weeks ago. God created the universe out of nothing. It was originally very good, and he created it to glorify himself. Now, uh, we, talked, we talked about what it meant to create the universe out of nothing, special creation of Adam and Eve. And we talked about... Um, the goodness of the creation, God's purpose in the creation, that's all in past weeks. So now we get to this question that we started on two weeks ago, the relationship between uh, the Bible and the findings of modern science. Um, and this is just a few slides are just going to be reviewed. And how many of you, do, do all of you have this um, outline? Uh, I'm going to take this one actually for myself. Do, do we, who needs who needs an outline? That's what I'm supposed to be doing. Hold up your hand and there. Oh, here are some. Okay. Just keep your hand up and one will come around. Okay. So we're under uh, on that uh, handout. We're under um, number two. Some theories about creation, 
Well, we're, we're under number one first, the relationship between Scripture and the findings of modern science. I talked about that last week with uh, the um, uh, points that Francis Schaeffer made in his book, No Final Conflict. Now, uh, I'll just review this. Often sincere Christian faith and strong trust in the Bible have led scientists to the discovery of new facts about God's universe, as with uh, Newton and Galileo and Kepler and many, many other scientists. And so... Surely it's not true that belief in God and belief in the Bible are incompatible with sound scientific investigation. And a number of you in this class have actually in your careers been involved in, uh, the, uh, in, in various aspects of, of science and scientific research and discovery. Um, and so it has been throughout history. Um, but as with Galileo, uh, when Galileo said the sun was the center of the solar system, there were some people in actually then at the Roman Catholic Church uh, in uh, Italy um, who uh, said, no, wait a minute, that's contrary to the Bible. But uh, they were claiming more than the Bible said. The Bible doesn't say that the sun goes around the earth. They were just kind of trying to, they were concluding that incorrectly. And uh, they, they persecuted Galileo, forced him to recant. Uh, but it was a sorry, that's a sorry history in the story of conflict between uh, uh, science and, uh, and Christianity because uh, people were arguing for more than the Bible actually said. Um, creation is not something that can be recreated in a laboratory experiment, nor are there human observers. So it stands to reason that it's, if, if there was somebody watching and then who tells us about it, namely God himself, uh, we should take his words as reliable. In fact, he's, if he's the one who made the universe, we should take his words on it as reliable. But then what about the conflicts between the Bible and science? I think, again, I want to re repeat this. We should not fear scientific investigation of the facts of the created world, but should do so eagerly and with complete honesty, confident when the facts are rightly understood, they'll always turn out to be consistent with God's inerrant words in Scripture. I don't think the Bible is just to teach us about uh, um, our relationship to God and and uh, kind of moral conduct of right and wrong. It's to teach us about whatever it does teach us about. And if it has statements about uh, the way the universe came into being, then we should believe those and accept those because those are also things that God decided to tell us. And so then we started out here at point two. Some theories of creation seem clearly inconsistent with the teachings of Scripture. Any secular theories that don't see uh, God as responsible for creating the universe by intelligent design that is, people say, well, how did the universe came to being? Well, there was just a Big Bang. Well, where did the Big Bang come from? Well, it just happened. That's a secular theory. Now, maybe there was a, a kind of a God-caused explosion of a matter that came out, you know, suddenly radiated out from one point in the universe. Um, but if we remove God from that, then I think that's surely contrary to the biblical teaching. And then I just started to get into this theistic evolution um, which is the idea that um, God just guided the process of evolution proposed by Darwin. Though uh, there was maybe God intervening at the point of creating matter and creating life and perhaps creating man. So, okay, God said, here's matter, and then it all just randomly evolved. Then here's a, a very tiny, maybe one-celled organism, then it evolved into uh, plants and fish and mammals, man. Uh, and But no, at man, then God said, okay, now I'm going to create man. Uh, that That's kind of a... Uh, it all evolved, as scientists say, by random mutation over billions of years, but, um, but God kind of oversaw it at certain points. And I'm saying I don't think that that position is consistent with the Bible's teaching 
um, because the randomness of evolutionary theory, which is really the driving force, the random mutation, that's incompatible with scripture's teaching on the purposefulness of God's work. And so God created things according to their kinds, uh, not just letting them evolve into all sorts of other things. And uh, the driving force of evolutionary themes is randomness. And by by contrast, God created specific things and according according to their kinds, and when he created each thing, it was good. And, uh, well, this is just, at any particular point, I think God would, uh, theistic evolution would have to say, let the, God said, let the earth forth living creatures according to their kinds, and after 387,492,817 attempts, God finally made a mouse that worked. And that, I mean, that, think that's what you have to say. If, if you say, well, it was, it was evolution all along, except at matter, life, and man, well, then you've got a whole bunch of, of failures. Instead of saying, uh, let the earth bring forth living creatures, and all of a sudden, there you have mice and rabbits and alligators and all that stuff. So, um, but when people say God intervened, then you don't have evolution. So, I mean, you're, you're kind of straddling both worlds, and I think that I, I think that's not uh, not a good solution. Now, um, it's the idea that God's creative word brings immediate response. We talked about that last week. Okay, that that's review up to that point. Now, now I want to talk particularly about the Darwinian theory of evolution, and, and uh, that'll expand a little bit more on what I was saying about uh, randomness, I think, being an, in, an um, uh, I mean, not, the, uh, not an accurate explanation of what Before I talk about Darwinian, uh, Darwinian theory of evolution, I want to define some terms. What, in fact, do we mean by evolution? First, uh, there is, well, I'm just going to say microevolution and macroevolution. A microevolution is small development within one species. That is, um, certain kinds of bacteria develop immunities. People, or, or certain kinds of uh, insects develop immunities to certain insecticides. Um, people can breed roses, so they become different colors and sizes and shapes of roses. And uh, human beings are getting taller over time. And that's a variation within uh, the human species. Um, everybody agrees that happens. No, there's no objection at all. You, you see it. You observe it. In fact, we can cause it to happen, whether it's hybrid crops or, or, or hybrid cattle or, or, or whatever. And so that is not the argument. That is not the argument at all. I don't know anybody in the world that disagrees that that happens. Um, uh, the question is whether you can extrapolate that little, that small variation within species, whether you can extrapolate that to say, ah, the same thing happened to give rise to all living things. So you had non-living matter, it became a living cell, and then became a, a, a more complex cell, and then became some kind of plant, and became some kind of fish, and became some kind of animal, and became some kind of ma- mammal, and became some kind of eventually human being. That's the question, whether you get macroevolution. And that is the idea here that I've just taken from a book by uh, uh, Wayne Frere. 
non-living substance gave rise to the first living material, which subsequently reproduced and diversified to produce all extinct and extant organisms, all organisms, so that uh, here is macroevolution, and, and in this sense, you have no creative uh, direction or plan by God. It just happened. How did it happen? Well, one cell became one cell became one cell, and just there were cells, there were cells, there were cells. All of a sudden, there were two cells. And these two cells had an advantage over the one cell. So they decided to have more two-celled animals or organisms. And then all of a sudden, well, they didn't decide, though. It just happened. And so then uh, we have more and more and more uh, complex organisms. And, uh, and there are... Um, and, and so then you get that complexity increasing just by random mutation, and the more complex and better ones then uh, lead to all extant things. Now, there are challenges. There are current challenges to Darwinian evolution. Um, and Darwinian evolution is exactly the same as uh, today as uh, what uh, Charles Darwin proposed in 1859 in The Origin of Species because there's uh, uh, more complexity to it, more refinement of the theory, but in principle, it's the same. It's that uh, life began when a mix of chemicals present on Earth spontaneously produced a very simple, probably a one-celled life form. And this living cell reproduced itself. And then eventually there were some mutations or differences in the new cells produced, leading to the development of more complex life forms. Now, a hostile environment meant that many would die, but those best suited to their environment survived, and that's called natural selection, or survival of the fittest, in kind of a, uh, a, a quick phrase. Those best suited to their environment survived. Now, um, uh, there have been, I suppose, hundreds of books challenging this theory from the time that Darwin first proposed it. But in 1991, uh, a kind of... I think a, a, a large step upward in the sophistication of the arguments uh, against Darwinian evolution was made by a man named Philip Johnson. Uh, Philip Johnson at the time, he's now retired, but at the time was a professor at University of California, Berkeley, which is a major, major research university, and he was a law professor. And he had taught there for 20 years, and his, he, um, his specialty was teaching law students how to argue. And so he had a specialist, specialist in the nature of argument, and how words are used in argument, and how logic is used in argument. Now, Philip Johnson was um, a rather bright man. He, um, he went to Harvard, and then he went to the University of Chicago Law School. Now, how do you decide who the best student at the University of Chicago? How do you, what's an indication of the best students at the University of Chicago? Now, the University of Chicago Law School is absolutely one of the hardest ones to get into, one of the best law schools in the nation. And then the very best students from that law school go on to clerk for different judges. And if you clerk for a district court or a circuit court judge, that means you're really bright. But if you, clerk, if you get to be the clerk for a Supreme Court judge, well, that means you're just one of the very brightest people in the whole nation in that, at that time. Well, he, uh, Philip Johnson, after graduating from the University of Chicago Law School, 
became law clerk for Chief Justice Earl Warren of the United States Supreme Court. So he's pretty bright. And then, and then, he, and then he went to the University of Law School and taught science of, of argument. Well, um, a few years prior to 1991, he began reading in some scientific literature, and he began reading arguments that people were making re regarding Darwinian evolution. I think his interest uh, was aroused in this because uh, there were some legal cases where Louise, for instance, had a law requiring evolution, uh, that alternatives to evolution be explained to students, and then this worked through the court system, and Philip Johnson was reading some of these law cases, and he said, oh, this is very interesting. And the more he read of the arguments in favor of Darwinian evolution, the more he said, this is, this is circular reasoning. It's basically saying, how do we know it happened? Well, because it happened. Or, uh, or it's, it's reasoning based on defining the, defining the words so that no objections count against your theory. And so uh, one thing he said was happening was that the word science was being defined to be only things that are found in the natural world. <clears throat> well, all right. Um, so, or, or only uh, things you can measure, toss, touch, or, or record. That is uh, the, the material created. That's all that science deals with. Well, that's fine if you want to deal. If you want to, um, if you want to define science that way, unless then you say that science now gets to tell you about how the universe came into existence. Well, if someone says, well, I think God created the universe, people say, well, that's not science. Well, you say, yeah, but that's what happened. Well, you can't say that because that's not science. Well, what kind of an argument is that? <clears throat> that's not bringing evidence. That's not saying God didn't create it. That's just saying, I've already defined, that it, I've already defined the word science to say it can't, can't be created. Well, who told you you get to define the word science to say that something can't be created? Well, we just define science that way. And so, it, it, am I making sense? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so by defining the nature of the word science, the uh, lawyers uh, were opposing teaching of creation in, in schools, um, won uh, court battles. Philip Johnson said, Well, how, since when does defining the word that you can use in the debate means that you're right? See, and, and he said all the objections that were brought against evolutionary theory, like is, where, where's any evidence that, that you can have a simple, where, can, you, can you reproduce this? Can you, can you show me a frog becoming a, a mammal? No. Can you show me fossils that show intermediate steps between a frog and a, and a, and a, and a mammal? Uh, no. Well, if you don't have any evidence, then how can you say this is true? And then he said the, the evolutionists would answer, well, it happened. <laughs> well, then... They would say, well, to, back to people who object to say, well, your answer. People say, well, I think God. You can't say that. That's not science. Well, what if that's what happened? Well, it can't happen because that's not science. So it can't be that way. So that it, 
by, by saying that science is purely naturalistic, then, then that's expanded to a claim about the nature of all reality. That is, the, the, only, the only thing that could have happened in history is what, it, is, what is in the material creation. I hope I'm explaining that clearly. Well, well Philip Johnson became agitated at this, and he said, this is a question-begging argument. This is not sound argument. I wouldn't allow this in my courtroom, and I wouldn't want my students to argue this way. Um, and he said, now, it, the, the waters were muddied a little bit by a group called creation scientists. And in the Louisiana case, people were not only arguing that there was a designer who created the Earth, but that it was 24-hour days, and the Earth is very young. And then all the <clears throat> questions about the age of the Earth got involved in that. He said, I don't want to go there. I don't want to commit my, I don't want to, I said, I'm not a creation science. I don't, uh, um, I, I, I'm not arguing for that viewpoint. But I am very troubled that uh, that Darwinian evolution seems not to be based on evidence, but on assumptions that people bring to the argument. Okay, so that's that's where his book goes. Now, <clears throat> because his uh, his argument, his book Darwin on Trial, because it did so. So he started reading all this. In fact, very sophisticated defenses of Darwinian evolution, and then he started going to these college campuses major universities around the United States and debating these proponents of evolution. And of course, he did very well in the debates. Um, and uh, um, he's just a kind of a friendly, friendly guy and just a jovial guy, but just very, very bright. And he's not really the kind of guy you want to get in an argument with when the facts are not on your side. So um, yes, he is a believer. He goes to a Presbyterian church. In fact, he's on the faculty at Biola right now after he retired from, uh, from Berkeley. So, uh, so it, it, uh, Philip Johnson came two or three times to, to talk uh, to speak at Trinity Divinity School, and I was teaching there. I've talked with him uh, on a number of occasions, and he spoke to our faculty. And uh, he began to gather to himself a number of other very bright uh, scientists and uh, lawyers and other kinds of people who um, um, were writing and speaking and making arguments against uh, Darwinian evolution. And I think they've had a large impact in the last, uh, what is that, 15 years now. I think, and, and the intelligent design movement and Michael Behe in this book, Darwin's Black Box, which talks about the complexity of living cells and how those uh, just had to have been designed. They just couldn't have happened spontaneously. That those have, I think, made an impact <laughs> Not, not to the point where, well, I'll, I'll, I'll mention, when we went, when we lived in Illinois, a number of the people who are a Baptist church that we attended in Libertyville also worked at Abbott Labs, which is a major science, uh, pharmaceutical research labs. And they were PhD biochemists or chemists or biologists, molecular biologists and all this. All of them creationists. That is, they believed that God created the universe and didn't believe in Darwinian evolution. And I would say to them, well, do you know a lot of scientists who are creationists? They say, yes, and a lot of them, many, many, many scientists who, are, who believe in creation. And I said, do you know of any who have appointments as faculty in, the, in, the, uh, in uh, biology, say, at major research universities? And they said, no, not one, uh, because, they're, because this is kind of a creed of orthodoxy. Well, let me get on to some of the things that Johnson said. Um, uh, but uh, I guess where I wanted to bring that to a close was to say, I think that Johnson and those who follow him are having an increasing impact on the debate. 
because it's a very high-level, high-quality argument that they're bringing, and they just can't be ignored, and uh, they're very hard to dismiss. And and uh, and Johnson's um, strategy was get a lot of get get others with him, uh, and then to reach high school and uh, college students who love to have a cause to champion and give them enough evidence so they can raise very difficult questions in uh, university classrooms and things like that. So I think it's going to increasingly have an impact and a positive impact. Um, Philip Johnson, I um, when I was at Biola three or four weeks ago, he um, I, I'm afraid in the last couple of years he he suffered some uh, serious strokes strokes and so he's not teaching full-time anymore and I don't know if he will be able to he's not very old he's only 66 um, uh, but um, uh, so that's uh, but but he's given his lifetime to a, uh, a very worthwhile thing and it's going to carry on after him all right well here are some of his arguments he said first Johnson said the amount of variation produced in 100 years of research is still extremely limited. He said, you can breed dogs for champions for, where are Gene and Edie Moore? Is Edie here today? You, you have championship dogs, don't you? Show dogs. And you can breed dogs to become better, you know, I don't know what I'm saying. What am I saying? <laughs> There's a huge range of type of dog, from these little tiny doglets to <laughs> <laughs> to huge uh, Great Danes, and you know. But they're still dogs. And and uh, and and Johnson says, no matter how much you try, you can't breed dogs to become as large as elephants. There's a genetic limitation to the range of variation uh, in size. And no matter how much you try, you still get dogs. And um, they don't become another kind of animal. Moreover, he said, if you want to see what happens with random mutation, just release these hybrid dogs into the wild. And within a generation or two, they all revert to kind of average mongrels of some sort. And so they're still dogs. But, but that is, it's not just that randomness doesn't produce anything. Intelligent, active, trying uh, attempts to produce variation beyond uh, the limitations of the genetic range of what dogs are don't produce anything else. So dogs are still dogs, and fruit flies are still fruit flies, even though you can get microevolution, as I said, as within fruit flies, you can get different kinds of fruit flies or fruit flies that have resistant to certain kind of insecticides and things. B, almost, and then and here's where uh, Johnson's skill at analyzing arguments came to play. He said, almost any characteristic of any living animal can be said to give it some advantage in surviving with imagination. Um, polar bears have white skin. Oh, it, it hides them. Well, why do other animals have dark skin? Well, it keeps them warm. I mean, light skin works, dark skin works. Uh, large skull works, small skull works. Everything helps in some way. Um, having wings is an advantage. You can fly away from predators. What about these little beetles that don't have wings? Well, that's an advantage because of some, something else. So that it's, it's what uh, Johnson says is a non-falsifiable argument. That is, what would count as evidence against Darwinian evolution, on the Darwinian viewpoint, nothing. 
because every, everything that you find in every living creature is just argued to be, well, this gives it some kind of advantage. So what natural selection really means is that the animals that survive are those that survive. It's a tautology, says Johnson, but it's not a persuasive argument to support a theory. In practice, those that survive through generations are those that have the greatest number of offspring. This proves nothing about mutations. So, whereas Darwinian theory is attempting to say these uh, rabbits, these rabbits survive because um, uh, they have these characteristics. They can hop and run, and I don't know. Uh, um, how do you know that that's why they survived? How do you know it isn't because God created rabbits that way? Well, that's not science. Well, does that really tell you anything that you know as an established fact about what happened? It's just a theory, isn't it? Okay, so that's that's uh, so he said it's, it's not a it's not a persuasive argument. And then um, and then the other thing is that the vast and complex mutations required to produce complex organs. That is an eye. Some of you, Rick, or others of you, or physicians here, know that the eye is just, has just so many things needed to make it function. Um, or a bird's wing has so much design to it and so many different, different bones have to be in place and joints and feathers and all um, that it isn't just one tiny mutation so you get a little bit different kind of feather. You've got to have all the bone structure and everything else that those complex mutations could not have occurred in tiny mutations accumulating over thousands of generations because the individual parts of the organ are useless. They give no advantage until, unless the entire organ is functioning. And, I, I, um, and, and then the mathematical probability of thousands of such random mutations happening in one organism all at one time, in one generation, is effectively zero. In other words, uh, you've got something that's crawling along the ground and it can't fly and it needs wings to fly. Well, you've got to get a mutation that in one animal has a whole lot of different kinds of bones and different kinds of feathers attached to the bones and tendons and ligaments and nerves and that it attaches to the body and then the nerves that make it <laughs> flap, you know, that, that go to the brain that make it do this. And, and, um, and that, that's thousands of mutations in one organism at one time. Because if you just get one that has bones without feathers, it doesn't help it. You know, it's going like this and it can't get off the ground. Or if it has feathers without bones, it's kind of going like this and it can't get off the ground. And, so, and if it has feathers and bones without the nerves that go to the brain that says, I mean, that's thousands upon thousands of mutations just happened to happen. How do you know that that happened? Well, look, here's a bird. It had to happen. We know it happened because, because birds have wings. Well, wait a minute. What about an alternative explanation? What about the idea that there was a God who designed it that way so it worked? That's not science. You can't say that. Well, what if it's true? You still can't say it. <laughs> you can't say it. it, it and, and, well... <laughs> So, the, so anyway, that that well, it, so the mathematical probability of that is effectively zero, and people start multiplying out the math. People who have statistical ability and, and they get lots of ways of saying zero. Uh, and Darwinists are left saying that it must have happened because it happened. And now the the humorous example I took from another book is this 
thing called the bombardier beetle, and I'm just going to read you a little paragraph about this beetle. In a book by Kofal and Seagraves, The Creation Explanation, the bombardier beetle repels enemies by firing a hot charge of chemicals from two swivel tubes on its tail. The chemicals fired by this beetle will spontaneously explode when mixed together in a laboratory. Huh. You put these two chemicals together in the laboratory, pow, you get a little explosion. And it's inside a beetle. Why doesn't it explode inside the beetle? Well, the beetle has an inhibitor substance that blocks the explosive reaction. Until the beetle squirts some of this liquid into its, quote, combustion chambers, where an enzyme is added to it to catalyze the reaction. An explosion takes place, and the beetle shoots a chemical repellent at its enemy at a temperature of 212 degrees Fahrenheit at the beetle. And uh, it's very effective. <laughs> now, so, I don't know. So, so, you've got, so you've got two chemicals that'll explode. They don't, there, there's an inhibitor that keeps it from exploding, and then it goes into this chamber, and then there's an enzyme that makes it explode. So you need the two chemicals, the inhibitor, and the enzyme. Kofel and Seagraves say this, note that a rational evolutionary explanation for the development of this creature must assign some kind of adaptive advantage, that is, adaptive advantage, that helps it live and give birth to more offspring for the next generation. It has to have an advantage to each of the millions of hypothetical intermediate stages in the construction process. But would the stages of one-fourth, one-half, or two-thirds completion have conferred any advantage? For all, a rifle is useless with all its, without all its parts functioning. So, you know, what about these swivel tubes? You don't have any explosive mixture. That doesn't do any good. Hey, what are you doing? You got these, hey, beetle, why do you have these extra tubes? Oh, I don't know. Maybe in a thousand years I'll get something to explode inside them. It doesn't really make any sense to have the tubes without the explosive mixture. Don't you think they look kind of nice? Well, anyway. <laughs> I'm elaborating. Before the def but now I'm reading. Before the defensive mechanism could afford any protection to the beetle, all of its parts, together with the proper explosive mixture of chemicals, plus the instinctive behavior required for its use, to aim at the enemy, would have to be assembled. All the parts have to be assembled in the index. The partially developed set of organs would be useless. Therefore, according to the principles of evolutionary theory, there would be no selective pressure to cause the system to evolve from a partially completed stage toward the final completed system. If a theory is to explain the data in any science, that theory should either be revised or replaced with a theory that is in agreement with the data. And in this case, of course, now I say, the amusing question is, what would happen if the explosive chemical mixture developed in the beetle without the chemical inhibitor? <laughs> no more beetle. And you can multiply those examples by, by tens of thousands, um, even with all the complex uh, functions in our human body. Then uh, Johnson goes on to say this, the, the fossil record does not reflect any intermediate species, not in Darwin's day nor in 130 years of intensive archaeological activity. And uh, so um, Darwin said, well, okay, I just got a little bit of data and I know I haven't found anything that's between uh, uh, a fish and a bird, 
um, or between you know a, a, a frog and, a, and a larger mammals or something. I know I haven't found any fossils that are between that, but when people investigate more and they discover fossils, then we'll discover the intermediate types, the missing links. But in 130 years, none have been discovered. And, and, uh, and some that have been claimed have turned out to be false, and, uh, and Johnson has a, um, a little discussion of this Archaeopteryx, uh, kind of uh, half-fish, half-bird kind of thing that, uh, in fact, wasn't what it was claimed to be. And there are some other things that are kind of amazing hoaxes that have been perpetrated, but um, uh, no convincing evidence. Well, if it really happened, then why don't you, why, why the fossil record have only just um, known kinds of animals, either extinct or extant, uh, but no intermediate types. Well, um, we're not sure, but it still happened because that's science. And we've defined science to mean can't have God in it. And therefore, it's got to be true because we've defined it that way. Um, so Johnson said this is not a persuasive argument. If, if you, if, uh, if, if, um, if attempting to produce this variation doesn't work, so you don't have experimental confirmation, if it's based on uh, a tautology, that's not a persuasive There's no the, the evidence isn't supporting the argument. The form of argument isn't supporting the argument. The uh, difficulties involved in the process are so unlikely as to be impossible. That doesn't support the argument. And uh, there's more uh, historical evidence that doesn't support the argument. So the argument's beginning to look very weak, says Johnson. Um, um, and uh, then uh, there are others, and you could go on quoting lots and lots of other evidence this way. Uh, uh, Michael Denton was an Australian uh, physician, who a non-Christian, but he wrote a book called Evolution of Theory and Crisis, 1986. And uh, he says, since Darwin's time, neither of the fundamental axioms of Darwin's macroevolutionary theory, the concept of the continuity of nature, that is the idea of a functional continuum of all life forms linking all species together and leading back to a primeval cell, and the belief that the adaptive design of, of life has resulted from a blind random process, neither of those axioms have been validated by one single empirical discovery or scientific advance since, 19, since 1859. So where's the evidence? Well, we have animals and we have people here, so it must have happened. But that, Johnson says, that's not a, a persuasive argument. Um, now, what about similarities in molecular structures? I, I remember back in a, a junior high biology book, where uh, my friend whose dad taught biology at the local state university, he said, Wayne, you've got to believe in evolution. Look, here's a cell from a, 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 a gorilla, or no, here's a cell from a, a dog, or here's a cell, and, and you blow them up, and they, they look the same as a cell from a human. cell from uh, uh, animal blood, and human blood, or animal skin, or animal bone, they look the same. That means the one evolved into the other. And um, Johnson says, and I think it's right, there is a relationship there, but does that imply a common ancestry or does it imply a common designer? 
That is, I could go into um, a museum on the history of automobiles, and I could go back to a Model T Ford, and then I could go to a, a Ford from the 1960s, and then I could go to a Ford from today and say, hey, look, the Model T has a steering wheel, Ford today has a steering wheel. The Model T has wheels, has four wheels. A, a 2006 Ford has four wheels. And uh, they both have doors. Did Model T have four doors? I can't remember. But uh, you could point out all these similarities. And here there's an axle and a drive shaft. And whoa, modern cars must have evolved from Model Ts by a random, uh, <laughs> random mutation. Uh, and you say, no, I think there was um, a common designer or a team of designers. And they found things that worked in Model T's and they used them in subsequent Fords and they used them in Fords today. So the fact that cells look the same just means that maybe God found a good idea for a cell and, uh, and, um, and he used it in uh, similar ways. Moreover, evolution cannot explain how any life could have begun from a random mixing of chemicals and the improbability of that with the complexity of, of, uh, of living things, again, is, is just a huge uh, impossibility, basically. Um, in fact, uh, Johnson, quoting another fellow, Fred Hoyle, says, the living, that a living organism emerged by chance from prebiotic soup is about as likely as that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble Boeing 747 from the materials therein. Chance assembly is just a natural way, naturalistic way of saying miracle. In fact, I think it is more likely that a tornado would produce a... And you know how complex a 747 is? I mean, how, it takes years to build, and the electrical wiring and the, the parts inside that are just unbelievable. Rick, you were inside the Boeing plant recently. Astounding? Yeah. Correct complexity. I think a tornado creating 747 is more likely than random mutation producing a living cell or random gener... Why? I, I, here's my evidence. People have produced a 747. People have not been able to produce a living cell. So it's harder to produce a living cell than a 747. Right? I think it is. Out of non-living things. Okay? And that's why I, I told you I was flying back from uh, Philadelphia last fall, sitting next to this atheist religion professor. Do, do you remember that? And uh, and and uh, the <laughs> and uh, and as we landed in Dallas, and she had to get another plane, I had to get another plane, and uh, my my phone buzzed, and uh, and it and all of a sudden up on the screen came this. Uh, Notice that my flight was taking off from such and such a gate at such and such a time. And I, I said, oh, look. And she said, how'd you do that? And I said, well, you go online for American Airlines and you can send, have them get you, send you a text email. She said, oh, that's really, that's really cool. And I said, yeah. And then I said, uh, nobody made this. It just happened. <laughs> and she said, very funny. So, but... But we, we take it for that has to be produced by intelligence, by intelligence and skill and a lot of work, and it's not as complex as, as a living organism. So, 
So why do we say that a living organism could be produced just by randomness, by, by chance, by no direction? Well, because if you say something else, it's not science. That is, they've already ruled out the true answer by a, a kind of an arbitrary definition of what answers will be allowed. In billions of years and thousands of miles in distance, with even generous masses of, here's some, another statistical uh, computation by this Kofal and Seagraves book, thousands, if you, if you say you've got protein covering the Earth, um, every square foot of the Earth's surface has 95 pounds of protein molecules that could mix freely, and they're replaced with fresh protein every year for a billion years, they say still the probability that one enzyme molecule would develop that one end, you've got protein molecules making an enzyme molecule. But enzyme molecule will develop in each billion years. The probability is 1.2 times 10 to the 11, or one chance in 80 billion. But how do you get the protein there in the first place? And then you've got, how do you get two active molecules, 10 to the 22nd? The probability that they're identical, 10 to the 70th, and could life start from a single enzyme molecule? In other words, they get, uh, eventually, the possibility of enzymes being formed and finding each other uh, and producing again was, uh, they, they calculate, uh, 10 to the 340 millionth power. Well, maybe they're off by a factor of a million, but, <laughs> but it's really unlikely. Now, here's the thing. People are basing their entire view of what life is about and where it came from and whether they believe in God and their eternal destiny on this theory. Would I get on an airplane if the president of the airline said, we land safely one in 10 to the 340 million times? No, I wouldn't. But, but people are doing more than that. They're placing their whole life in the belief in a theory that has this many probabilities with it. Why? Because we've defined science so you can't have, so that, so that one answer that people have believed throughout history, that is that God created the universe, one answer that about 70% of the people in the United States still believe that God created the universe, that that answer can't be true because we won't allow it to be called science. And science gets to define how life came about. How do you get to define what life came about? Well, we've just said that we do. Uh, so that's kind of the scientific, uh, of the current scientific community, uh, evolutionary establishment, Darwinian evolution. Therefore, Darwinian evolution should not be considered an established fact. Now, a question is, what if someday, what if someday uh, scientists actually um, created, a team of research scientists created life in a laboratory from non-living matter? And there are sort of micro-steps along the way that have happened. I don't think this would prove evolution, but it would just prove that life takes intelligent design to create. That is, you get a lot of the right materials to start with, and then you have um, you know, hundreds of scientists around the world over generations contributing research and millions of dollars of equipment, and then you create something that lives. All that proves is that you need an intelligent designer to create something that lives. And so I don't think that uh, disproves the theory of evolution, although or it disproves creation uh, by design. Um, but I don't know if it'll happen. The uncertainty of evolution has troubled many people, it, it, and it's created many novel positions. Francis Crick, the, along with uh, Crick and Watson, won the Nobel Prize for the discovering of the double helix structure of the DNA molecule. Uh, Crick, in 1973, 
was so frustrated by the, the improbability of life actually coming about by random mutation and long periods of time that he said, there has to be another explanation. I can't, I can't say there was a God who created it, but I have an idea. And he called it directed panspermia. That is, life must have come here sent by a spaceship from a distant planet. Well, how is that more likely than that intelligent than that a powerful creator God created it? Well, this is science. It's at least a spaceship. So, <laughs> what's the evidence for this? Well, it happened. So, <laughs> I mean, and he he published this as a serious theory. He's a Nobel Prize winner, one of the greatest you know scientific discoveries in the in the last century. Does this make any difference for us? I believe so. Uh, there are serious destructive consequences of evolutionary theory in modern thought. And here's, here's why I think it's important, and why I do think it's important to say that, well, in actual fact, the Bible talks about God creating the universe and creating life and creating animals and creating human beings in his image. And I think that's true. Somebody says, well, you can't call that science. Well, don't call it science if you don't want to. It's still true. Call it fact. Call it truth. Call it history. But it's true. See, I, I, I still want to say that. Now, I, um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's th that question of defining the word science to be only naturalistic science. People can go different ways on that. But the question is, if that gets to determine, then all that is counted is true. But if in fact, people believe in evolutionary theory, then why Philip Johnson is concerned about this? He says it becomes the organizing, the, the um, cultural explanatory story for all that happens and all of our life. So it becomes a religion in a way. And uh, there are consequences that if man is in fact the product of random occurrences in the universe, then there's no real significance to human life. That is, if I'm just the product of molecules churning around and random mutation, What's my life for? It's nothing. That leads to despair because there's no God who gives me meaning. And with no creator, there's no judge to hold us morally accountable. And I think this accounts for a lot of the moral breakdown in society. People say, why is all this evil? Why is people doing evil in our society? Why is all this and this and this going on? Why, don't kids, why are kids growing up doing evil? Well, because if you're taught that there's no creator, but you're just the product of random mutation, then who's going to hold you accountable? Nobody has final, at a final judgment. So do what you can get away with, and that results in moral breakdown in society. If natural selection brings improvement in life form, should we hinder this process by caring for those who are weak or less able to defend themselves? This led in the earlier part of the 20th century to social Darwinism. That is, if people are weak and poor and sick, get rid of them. Don't help them. Social Darwinism, let the fittest survive. And we should, I had a research scientist at Abbott Labs say to me, he was troubled. They've been working there 20, 25 years helping people get well with medicine. He said, why am I doing all this? Creating all this medicine to help weak people survive. Shouldn't, aren't we hindering survival of the fittest? Good question. And I think one that's very difficult for a Darwinian evolutionist to answer. In fact, shouldn't we destroy weaker human beings? I think it's a logical conclusion of Darwinian evolution. And Marx and Nietzsche and Hitler all justified war on, the, on this basis, on the basis of 
a belief in a Darwinian evolutionary system. Human beings are getting better, and the ones that are specifically getting better we should help, and the weaker we should destroy. If human beings evolve for the better, the wisdom of earlier generations is not likely as valuable as modern thought, and so that negatively impacts what people think of an ancient book like the Bible, leads to unbelief. And then if we're a higher form of animal, and this is really a, dom this is really a strong influence in society today, if we are just a higher form of animal, then we shouldn't kill animals for food or for leather, like this belt or these shoes, uh, because wh why should we kill them? They're not us. And why should we use them for scientific medical research? And there are a lot of protests against using animals in medical research, uh, radical human or animal rights groups, because they say we're just an animal and doesn't really allow for uh, God as a creator. Well, that is a summary. Now I'll take a few minutes here for some questions and interaction. Uh, yeah. Um, What's your name? Oh, Sherry Anderson. Sherry. <laughs> I'm concerned that all this, to me, boils down to a Godship issue. So who is the person of Darwin? I mean, here he is, he obviously had a Godship issue. Yeah. And then his principles, you know, burst forth into these yeah. theories. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we continue to be in that. The, the question is, who, yeah, who is God? And but you could ask, why, is, why did his view become so popular if there wasn't evidence to support it? It, de it? it was attractive to people who didn't want to believe in God and be accountable to God, I think, ultimately. Mike, do you want to say something? I know you've been interested in this. Um, I think you've done a very good job of capturing the fundamental arguments that are going on today. Uh, the real challenge that's happening in our universities today is understanding the origin of life. Yeah. The more we learn, the more complex it gets. And the simplest of one-celled organisms is more complex than anybody had ever dreamed of. Yeah. And we're, we're finding more and more difficult to just explain the, the fundamental mechanisms that we take on. Yeah. The real challenge is to Okay. Um, the, you know, the, the challenge that the scientist has today is uh, uh, scientific naturalism yep. is the methodology. Yeah. <clears throat> Go ahead. Yeah. You know, and and in the universities and the scientists have adopted uh, the methodology of scientific naturalism, but the problem is whether it, it it also translates to the philosophy of scientific naturalism, and that that's the thing that we have to keep out of our you know scientific. Uh, Investigations, and, yeah. and that's what's crept in ever since Darwin. Yeah. Uh, they've, as you said, they've redefinitions. Uh, you know, at times to suit uh, the purpose of certain arguments, and uh, those that uh, do believe in God have real challenge in the scientists sticking to a, uh, a consistent nomenclature. Yeah, yeah. Mike, what's your what's your title or what? what Associate director at the Biodesign Institute uh, at, at ASU. ASU. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Uh, Good. Anything else you want to say? I know it's because this is a you're, this is where you live. I mean, uh, well, issue. yeah. Actually, a fun one just to get everybody to on the same page is uh, um, a lot of people believed that uh, the conflict with Galileo and the church was a religion science conflict, and <clears throat> historians looking back on that uh, recognize that the actual fundamental problem was a uh, a conflict between basically the authority structure at the time and a new theory. Yeah. The problem was a fusion between the beliefs in the church and the beliefs in science. Um, the, the church they adopted, not necessarily on the basis of the biblical belief, but what the scientists were telling them. Oh. And the scientists, the pre prevailing scientific theory at the time was that the, the sun went around the earth. Ah. 
that, and that was consistent. In fact, the scientists argued against Galileo. They said it was absurd that the Earth could be going around the sun. That would mean that the sun had to be at least 30 million miles away from the Earth. What is it, and 93 million? It's 93 million, but they thought that that was such an absurd, <laughs> the scientist's argument, and so there was a consistency between the scientists at the time okay. and the church. And, the, and so Galileo was really viewed as being in defiance of, of science. authority. Interesting. And, and maybe some of the lessons are it's not just always conflict between science yeah. and religion, but you know maybe there's, there's, well, it always happens when a new theory comes along yeah. in, in science. And maybe the, the challenge was that the church also embedded itself with the theories of science in the, of yeah. the day yeah. and can be a mistake today for us, too. Good. Thanks, Mike. Okay. What else? Joyce? You take a couple more quickly here. I see Joyce's hand and then, uh, yeah. I don't know. Are Darwinists out further out on a limb than Darwin himself was? Well, I, look, I'm I'm in the position that I sometimes get in this class where I'm talking about the Bible. I know more, but when I'm talking about something outside the Bible, there are many of you in the class who know more than I do. So I'm not sure, but I think that there's increasing lack of evidence to prove and counter evidence against Darwinianism. Uh, so people are believing it in spite of that. So there is, in a sense, being farther out on a limb. What Darwin would think today if, you know, if all this evidence, lack of evidence came to light, we, we don't know. Anyway, I've gotta, we've got to get out of here pretty quick today. Uh, what, ben, you want to say something? I see you way back there. Ben's a... a, a yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 He does. I think he accepts theistic evolution, doesn't he? Francis Collins is a professor. Collins is a professor. Yeah, he is a theistic evolutionist, but the language of God. So good. Ben is uh, chairman of our. I shouldn't probably say the chairman of our search committee and on the elder board, and also a physician at the Mayo Clinic. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How do you rate uh, Lee Strobel's book in this argument, The Case for the Creator? Uh, how do I rate Lee Strobel's book, The Case for the Creator? Haven't read it. Don't know. His stuff is usually really good, so it's probably very good. And there's one more, Gene. Um, yes, the recent uh, Pope's speech that drew all the uh, fire from the Muslim world, yep. he was trying to make a comment really to the Christian world. Uh, his point on Islam and um, Christianity was, you know, in the West we have this rationalistic system. Yep. But he was critical of the West for taking it too far really forcing faith out of the academic world. Okay. He, said, he was giving a speech at a university. He said the foundation for university is a church inspired. We need to be able to have this dialogue between faith and the work that's taking place in science. Yeah. And um, I thought that that was a, a useful contribution. He got overlooked. Yeah, good, good. So the Pope encouraging dialogue between faith and science, not excluding religious belief. I don't know where it's going. No, I think I know where it. My hunch is that the arguments and the evidence against Darwinian evolution are just going to continue to accumulate, 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 accumulate until finally there'll be a break in the dike 
and where where secular people will go on that, I don't know. But but I, I just it gives to looking at the last 15 years, it gives me the appearance of one side is making a lot more progress than the other, and it's the and uh, and the Darwinian evolutionists are retrenching, but I don't think they're getting more evidence. And facts, in the end, are very stubborn things, um, and truth is a very stubborn thing, and I'm thankful for that. So. Um, but uh, that's where we are. Let, let me close in prayer. This is the day we have to get out early. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness. Um, pray, Lord, if I've said anything incorrect, that uh, uh, that would be that you would uh, correct that and not let it stick in people's minds. Um, but Lord, that you would give us uh, understanding and settled convictions and graciousness and accuracy as we represent the views of others. Um, and we pray, Lord, that there would be in the established scientific community and major research universities around our country, that there would be uh, more openness, that you would work in people's minds and hearts, there would be more openness to the idea that, in fact, there was a God who created the universe. We thank you that you are that God, and we can speak to you, and we trust you, and we thank you for sending your Son to be our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Next week, Age of the Earth.